Revelation chapter 11. I've got no real pocket there. We'll just take this off. Revelation chapter 11. The advantage of covering chapters at a time, especially in in, uh, the book of Revelation is uh, in the judgment sections, is it allows us to cover everything without becoming so fixated on the judgment to come that we just kind of want to give up and quit. It's hard stuff. Um, you're, you're getting it 30 or 40 minutes a week. I'm getting hours and hours and hours a week. And so I'd rather just keep it moving. The, uh, the disadvantage, of course, is that the messages tend to be a little bit longer. <coughs> and um, we want to make sure that we cover everything that, that is, is important, at least to the extent of comprehending what's there. I want to take the time, in spite of that, I want to take a few minutes and, and just cover the context of, of where we're at in Revelation. The judgment portion of the book of Revelation begins in chapter 6 with the opening of the seals. And the judgment properly comes to an end in chapter 18 with the destruction of Babylon the Great. But there's a shift in, in focus when we reach Revelation 11 um, there's a three-and-a-half-year period of time beginning. It's, it would be the second half of, of the, the Great Tribulation. That's described as uh, 1,260 days, and they use 30-month days in the Hebrew calendar. And so that's 42 months. That's 1,260 days. It's three-and-a-half years. And there, there are four different events that take place during those three and a half years. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first of those, which is the Gentiles trampling the city. That's in Revelation 11.2. The Gentiles will trample the holy city, Jerusalem, for 42 months. In the very next verse, we have God's two witnesses, and we're going to talk about them in, in more detail today. They prophesy for 1,260 days, which is 42 months. In chapter 13, the, the beast rises out of the sea. It's the Antichrist is, is in mind here. And verse 5 says that the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. And then in chapter, I'm sorry, I skipped chapter 12. In chapter 12, uh, we, we have a a unique picture of Israel that I I think in just the first few verses covers really the whole history of Israel, where God chooses Israel. uh, She is pregnant. The child she gives birth to is the Savior. And then we're at the end of time when the nation Israel, having been redeemed by God, having been sealed by God, is uh, nourished in the wilderness in verse 6 for 1260 days, in verse 14, a similar sta- statement where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time, which is a year, two years, and, and half a year. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time. Uh, so this is, these chapters are all describing um, different events taking place within the 
the second half of the Great Tribulation. And what we see taking place in those months are these two witnesses. We, or rather, we see the Gentiles trampling Jerusalem. Then we see the two witnesses appointed by God, preaching and performing miracles. Uh, we see the Antichrist and false prophet rising and exerting power, deceiving the wicked really into thinking that the Antichrist is the Son of God. Antichrist is not against Christ, it's in place of Christ, substitute Christ. So his great light of the world is not that he's the son of Satan there to devastate everything. His great light of the world is that he's the son of God there as the Savior. He is going to make war on the saints of God, although they will be spiritually protected from apostasy, many will die physically. As that three and a half year period of time comes to a close, then in chapter 14, we see the same 144,000 who were sealed in chapter 7, which, as I explained, I believe is a picture of all of Israel, standing safely with the Lamb on Mount Zion. They have come through that time because God has protected them and preserved them. We see three angels in, in uh, chapter 14 preaching from heaven. The first is giving a call to worship to the entire earth, the second announces the fall of the world system, and the third pronounces judgment on those who worship the Antichrist. Revelation 15 and 16 show the immediate impact of that judgment. It's another series of seven plagues, but I believe that rather than those seven plagues coming, coming forth over uh, an extended period of time, as we saw in the first part of uh, chapter 6 and 7, 8 and 9 and 10, I think these come, come into play very quickly at the end of the second half of the tribulation. Um, at that point, at the end of, of uh, chapter 16, you really have a situation where Jesus could return. And I think that within the chronology of God, that is where Jesus returns. But within the revelation of the book of Revelation, there's a pause, and John is given a, a close-up, close more detailed view of Babylon the Great called the Great Prostitute, which is the political religious system that dominates the earth. And what God does to, to uh, destroy that system in judgment. And then in Revelation 19, Jesus returns. So as we look at chapter 11, then we're seeing the beginning of this intensified period. Um, it's often called the Great Tribulation. We've got the Tribulation, which is seven years, and the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half. And what I've just described are, are ongoing events, by the way, all of these things. So the, the Gentiles trample for the entire time. The two witnesses preach for the entire time. The Antichrist rules and deceives for the entire time. Israel is protected for the entire time. So let, let's look at these two witnesses, starting in verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So we have a picture of this prophetic ministry. It's an Old Testament picture um, with prophecy and being clothed in sackcloth, which is a sign of, of mourning, a sign of lament. Um, we're not told who the witnesses are. There's a strong likelihood, I think, that we're looking at Moses and Elijah. Um, let me tell you why that could be the case. 
For one thing, both Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus at the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. They both obviously have got a a significant role to play with his glorification. Uh, Both Moses and Elijah experienced unusual departures from the world. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Um, God basically killed him. I mean, God didn't simply wait for Moses to die of old age before the Israelites moved into the promised land. Uh, Moses dies, and then God buries him. God buries him. Uh, We don't know if that means he was buried on earth or if he was buried in heaven, but God buries him. Elijah, for his part, is caught up to heaven in a whirlwind without ever dying. Another thing about both of them is that they both perform miracles that are really identical to the miracles described in this chapter in, uh, in verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have powers over the water to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Those, those are things that Moses and Elijah did. There's a, a very strong connection there, not to mention that Moses and Elijah did those things in, in their opposition to godless leadership and godless government. Um, da, 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 da. What else did I have? Um, yeah, so there, I, I think that there's a strong likelihood that they are Moses and Elijah proclaiming there in Israel. We have a picture of their ministry in verses 4 through 6 or so. They're called the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth uh, it's actually, I think, a simple picture. Uh, lamps at the time were oil lamps, and the better lamps burned olive oil. Olive oil comes from olives. Olives come from olive trees. So when you have two lampstands, you, you have two sources of light coming from two men who have been anointed by God. That means that this light is spiritual light. This is spiritual truth. And the fact that they are also called olive trees means you have an unending source of this light. If they were simply called lampstands, you could put a lampstand in a room, let it burn for a few hours, and when the oil's gone, it goes out. Here we have an unending source of oil for light as there's an unending source of divine revelation for the truth that they proclaim. We see that they perform certain miracles, especially in verse 5. If anyone would harm them, if anyone tries to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. So those who are seeking to silence them, and for three years, or three and a half years, there will be at least some attempts to shut them up, pay the ultimate price. And then, of course, they perform a lot of miracles. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. What's very interesting about these miracles is that we don't see the miracles of Jesus or his apostles here. There's a point, if you remember, where... Jesus was not being accepted by people in a town. I think it was in Samaria. And James and John said, Lord, would you like us to call fire down out of heaven to consume them? And Jesus rebuked them. He said, you don't know what spirit you're of. 
But these two men are doing exactly that. They're calling judgment down on the earth. And they're not doing the kinds of things that Jesus and his apostles did. They're not healing. They're not casting out demons. They're not raising the dead. They're not giving sight to the blind. They're not healing those who are crippled. They're not feeding the the hungry. Which to me seems to be a picture of the power of God is being exercised for judgment, not for redemption. That, That has come and gone. People still have opportunity here to repent of their sins and to believe. But we're told in, I believe it's in chapter 15, or chapter 16 perhaps, that as all of these things take place, there is no repentance. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent. The spiritual death goes so deep is part of the picture there. Another part of the picture there is that they have a Savior, don't they? They have the Antichrist. They have the Instead of Christ. They have the Substitute Christ. Who's telling them what the prophets were saying during Jeremiah's time. God isn't going to do anything harmful. God isn't going to bring judgment. God isn't going to bring punishment. God is going to bring peace. Not war. And so... Their spiritual leaders telling them there's no need to repent. So as we think about these two men, I have to wonder, why doesn't the world simply ignore them? It's just two guys. It's just two men. And they're in a, they're in a little city. Right now, Jerusalem is uh, about 48 square miles That makes it about 10 times the size of Norfolk. It's one-third the size of Omaha. It's half the size of Lincoln. Uh, It's about 80% of the size of Sioux City. From a global point of view, it's just a little place. It's not worth any attention. There's no gold there. There's no money there. There's no oil there. There's an old joke about the... The Hebrews being upset upset because they turned right instead of turning left, and the other ones got the oil and they got the sand. There's really nothing there. Why doesn't the world simply ignore them? Well, the reason is that there's a spiritual battle raging in the heavenly places in the spiritual realm. It's been raging since Satan was cast out of heaven. It was raging before man was created. It was, it was raging before the sin of man. In that spiritual battle, Jerusalem is ground zero on earth because it's the city where God said, you'll build my temple there. It's the city where God said, you will worship me there. It's the city where God sent his own son to die as a sacrifice and raised him from the dead. It's the city to which Jesus will return and establish his throne. It's the city from which he will rule the world through the millennial kingdom. Satan can't ignore Jerusalem. And so the people of the world can't ignore Jerusalem. The world is constantly arrayed against Christians today. We see it going on nonstop. You may know, you may know some of these names. Baronel Stutzman is a florist in the state of Washington. She's a Christian. She refused to sell flowers to a homosexual couple who were getting married. These men had been customers of her, hers for years. 
and she considered them friends. And when she refused, she was sued, and she lost. The, the Washington, state of Washington uh, Court of Appeals, or Supreme Court, just ruled against her at the end of February. She has now appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but who knows what will happen there. In the, in the Court of Appeals, or the, the Supreme Court of Washington, <coughs> she had sued on the ba- or she had resisted on the basis that it was a violation of her religious liberties to force her to violate her conscience. They ruled that forcing somebody to violate their conscience is not a violation of their religious liberties. Which, I'm not sure how that works. Richard and Betty Odgard are in Illinois. They have a restaurant. The restaurant refused to cater a homosexual wedding. They were sued. They lost. They were forced into bankruptcy and closed their doors. Robert and Cynthia Gifford have a, a small farm in, uh, in New York State, north of New York City, an hour, hour and a half up on the Hudson River. Beautiful little pastoral place. And... Uh, uh, it, Various times, it's not their business, but at various times they would uh, rent their, their farm for parties or for weddings. They refused to rent it to a homosexual couple and were sued. Um, they lost. In the decision of the, the New York court that ruled, um, the fact that they live on the farm does not make the farm private property. See, these are, these are they're insane. They're not even logical. Now, don't, don't we know that there are an overwhelming number of florists and bakers and restaurant owners and wedding venues that are happy to sell to anybody who just don't care? It's not an issue for them. And that, that there, there might only be a handful of businesses like that in each state who take that kind of a stand. Why not just ignore them? Well, they can't ignore them. They can't ignore them because there's a spiritual battle going on. The world doesn't ignore Christians because Satan doesn't ignore Christians. All of his hatred is vented toward God and toward those that God loves. So the world can't ignore them as they go through this three and a half years of preaching. There are attempts to kill them, but those attempts all fail. But... Chapter 13 tells us that the Antichrist is given authority to make war against the saints, and he does against these two men. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So the time comes when after three and a half years, the Lord grants Antichrist just a moment of, of victory. Three and a half days out of 1260 days. They lay in the open, they're ridiculed, they're mocked, they're degraded by the wicked. The description of the city, I think, is important. It is symbolically or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. 
Sodom because of the sexual perversion that will dominate the city as it dominates our times? Uh, Grace and I went to see a movie last night, and one of the trailers was, was uh, for the new Aliens movie, right? And the setup in the new Aliens movie, huh? No, the setup of the new Aliens movie is that a group of colonists, couples, are heading off to a planet to colonize the planet. Now, I want you to get that in your head. They're sending people to colonize, and among the couples are two homosexual men, or two, two, two homosexual men. It's like, uh, you, you do understand how colonization works, right? If, if for no other reason, but just rationale and reason, just common sense. It's like, I don't think that they know how it works. Sodom, because of the sexual perversion that dominates our world, it's not going anywhere. And it's going to dominate Jerusalem as well as the Gentiles trample it. Egypt, because of the, the rampant idolatry, Egypt has, ancient Egypt had dozens and dozens and dozens of gods. The, the Hebrews in Egypt in slavery were surrounded by those gods, and they brought those beliefs out. Much of the, the, the law that they are given in, uh, in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is working directly against the practices of the gods that they had been surrounded with in Egypt. And Israel continually goes back. It's like a broken record. They keep going back to idolatry. They keep rejecting God and going back to worship false gods. So Antichrist has won. These men are dead. They lay there for three and a half days. The people who were there... Um, are gazing at their dead bodies. It's been said that because of our time, people around the world will be able to see their dead bodies as well. People are going to rejoice and make merry and exchange presents because they've been a torment to those who had dwelt on the earth. But it, it is a short-lived victory. It's, it's barely even a long weekend, and it's over. But a breath of life, after three and a half days, verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. God rescues his people. Now, these men die, but then they're raised. They're, they're raised, and there appears to me, as I, just as I read the English text, that it doesn't say that, that they were raised and taken to heaven. It says that they were raised and their enemies, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, breath of God, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. It seems like there's a pause between the resurrection and the ascension. That there's, there's just three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes. They don't vanish, in other words. All these people who are dancing around them and degrading their bodies and mocking them and ridiculing them are suddenly shocked to see this take place. They went up to heaven in a cloud just as Jesus went up to heaven in the cloud. The Lord is going to make it clear at that moment then that judgment is not over judgment is still taking place there was a great earthquake verse 13 and a tenth of the city fell 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake the rest are terrified and gave glory to the God 
of heaven. By glory there, I don't think that it means that they worshipped him. I think that it means they give him the credit for it. This is something that only God could have done. But remember, these people are all deceived into believing that Antichrist is the Son of God and their Savior. And so they may believe a lie even with this, that there's some purpose, there's some, there's some design that the God of Antichrist has in raising these men up and taking them to heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is still to come. Judgment is, is not over. There is still the third woe to come. We're never told when the third woe begins. We're told when the first woe begins and ends. We're told when the second woe begins and ends. Woe means lamentation or grief or sorrow. I think that it's possible that the third woe is final judgment, which never ends. Heaven responds to this then. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give, you th- we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God is praised in heaven because he takes his power, he reigns, he destroys the wicked, and he rescues his people. Interesting picture in, uh, in chapter eight, or verse 18, with the nation's rage, but your wrath came. It's a picture from Psalm 2, where the nations rage against God and his anointed, and God laughs at them because that rage is so impotent. That rage is so futile and pointless. Notice that the time for the dead to be judged and the time for rewarding your servants is, is the same time. Everything is coming now to a point. Everything is coming to the end. Man, Earth has been in rebellion against God since the fall of man. Sinners have opposed God for all that time. Man has continued to carry out the old sins of the human race and, and to invent new sins. And the lie that Satan told Eve was, you will not surely die. There is no consequence. There is no judgment. What are you afraid for? Live your life. Be who you are. Be who you were born to be. God is not God not only loves you as you are, he likes you as you are. He made you exactly as you are. There's no judgment. Don't worry about it. The author of The Shack has released a new book called 28 Lies That We Believe About God. I haven't read the book. I read a re- review of it this morning. But the review is filled with quotes from the author and explanations of, of his beliefs. These are his beliefs. Um, among the lies that we believe about God are that human beings are sinners. Human beings aren't sinners. We're not wicked. We're just stupid. 
Okay, so 50% of the Bible goes away on that one. Another lie that we believe is that God is sovereign. In fact, God submits to, to man. If you've read the shack, you'll know that there's a point in the shack where, where the, the person in the story is actually told by God, God submits to you. Another belief is a denial of hell and judgment. Everybody, without exception, goes to heaven. In the book, and, and I don't have the exact quote here, but in the, in the, in the book as it's quoted there, he's basically, he basically asks a, a self-question, does this mean that I am a universalist? And he answers, yes, I am. So for him, the, the gospel is not the good news that man is dead in sin, but that God has made a way for salvation through Christ. The good news is that you don't have to worry about it. You're already saved. Hell, then, is, is not torment and separation from God for this man. Hell for this man is not knowing how much God loves you. Which means hell only lasts on earth during this lifetime and a little bit of that. The, the lie that he claims, or the thing that he claims is a lie that makes me, just, it just makes me sick to my stomach, is his belief that the cross symbolizes the greatest evil there is. That the cross is not God's plan. The cross is man's plan. If the cross was God's plan, that would make him a child abuser. The cross is unnecessary. The cross was pointless. Because there is no judgment. See, this man is an apostate, and if Antichrist appeared on the scene today, this man would begin worshiping him. He's, he's just ready. He's set. He's got every belief there to, to have such a, a bland, ecumenical view that doctrine divides and truth is just a matter of painful opinion. He's set up for deception. He's already self-deceived. What we, what we know from Scripture is that God hates sin and that he's going to bring judgment on sinners. And the gospel is the promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is the promise that Jesus paid it all for those who will believe. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan. The gospel is repent and believe the gospel and be saved. And come into a relationship where you love your Savior and experience the fullness of his love. chapter closes with a remarkable sight. In verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. It's a, it's a picture of, of the glory of God in the lightning and rumblings and thunder and earthquake and hail. But God's temple is open, and the ark of the covenant appears. The Ark of the Covenant appears. And it fits perfectly with what we've just seen in that there, there comes a time when, when God will finally judge the wicked and finally redeem the righteous. Within the Ark of the Covenant, within the chest, which was 
little bit bigger than this widthwise. I think it was three feet by two feet, four feet by two feet, or three feet. It's not huge. Inside that chest was placed the law of God. The tablets were placed there. And for those who are outside, for those who are wicked, the Ark of the Covenant holds their judgment. It's a picture of the judgment to come. I, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark got the physical description pretty good. I think the destruction of the Nazis at the end is not really what happens if you open the Ark, but it is the judgment of God that comes from the law of God because God has clearly stated what's righteous and what's unrighteous and the consequences for violating that. The top of the ark is this, this wooden top that's, that's covered with hammered gold. And it's called the mercy seat. It's called the propitiatory. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in with the blood of the sacrifice. He passed through the curtains, the veil, and he would pour the blood of the sacrifice out on top of the mercy seat. The, the whole inside of the Holy of Holies was covered with hammered gold. And so you can imagine if they've placed a torch within sight so that he can see, you walk into this room that is glittering yellow, but as soon as you pour out, I don't know, a quart of blood, that red reflection now is reflected everywhere. Jesus in, in 1 John is called our propitiation. He is the propitiation. And the word there is he is the mercy seat. So Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. And Jesus is the altar. He, he sacrifices himself and he takes his own blood and he pours it out upon himself. Untouched by human hands, that is. That, that means that he has full control over every aspect of the sacrifice, which is why it's perfect. From the same Ark of the Covenant comes a reminder of the law and the judgment of the wicked and a picture of the mercy and the grace of God for those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. So the, the question that I've had to ask as I keep going through Revelation, as I keep reading, as I keep pondering, is not simply where do I want to go next, someplace really nice and soft and not sure where we find that in the Bible, but where do I stand? Where do I stand? I can't imagine very many messages, very many sermons more offensive to the world than, than the one that I've just preached. And, and some of you might even be thinking, I'm really glad I didn't bring my unbelieving friends today. This is hard. There's this ugliness to it. There's this brutal reality. But this is, this is what Scripture says. I have to ask, do I side with God as he judges the wicked or do I accuse him? And you have to ask the same question. Do we stand on his side or on the side of, of his enemies? Do I understand that the judgments that fall in the book of Revelation are mine? They should have fallen on me. 
and they fell on the Lord Jesus instead. Do I understand that? Or, or do I d- defend my own righteousness and say, well, I'm, I'm not that bad. If I was there and all this stuff was happening, I would repent. Well, you wouldn't. Do I side with God in, in understanding that, that the world's blindness to the truth and the world's rejection to the truth is a constant pull? Jesus said that his people are in the world but not of the world. But the fact is he chose us out of the world and so we still have those threads taking us back. We still have the, the, those elements that we were raised with, that we're surrounded with still in our culture. And it's very easy for us to become willfully blind to the truth and diminish the truth, which I think has happened as uh, 20 million people have read The Shack. Certainly many of those are believers who, who willfully said, well, it's not a theological book and he's being poetic and it's, he's trying to define it. And I understand that. Um, one of my favorite books is, is the book The Robe. It's about the Roman centurion who ordered the, the crucifixion of Jesus and what happens to him in the, in the aftermath. It's fiction. I, under, I understand that. And there are a couple of elements in the story that I just think, no, you're getting him wrong there. But I'm aware that they're wrong. Too many people have read The Shack and not been aware that what they're reading is, is really ungodly. They've just said, oh, how wonderful, how, you know, and, and this, and think about, but it's wrong. Do we understand how much the world pulls us toward that truth is just opinion side? And, uh, and you don't have to go smack the book out of the hands of anybody that you know who owns it. But are you willing to say, I read it, or I won't read it, and this is why, or this is why it's a problem? 20 million people are saying, wow, what an awesome book. The the book is saying, no. So Revelation, as I preach through it, as I study through it, spend hours in it every week, it's it's a constant pull to go with the hard stuff full on as I see it in Scripture and to pull back and to try and moderate it. So pray for me. Pray I don't moderate it. Pray I stay as, as narrow as the Word of God is. My prayer for all of us is, as we go through this is that, that we will find ourselves in greater gratitude for what the Lord has saved us from that we'll understand the holiness of God and, and, and his righteousness as well as his love and his mercy, and that we'll be motivated for, for evangelism because this is coming. And even if we've all died and the Lord delays for 500 years or 1,000 years or more before these events take place, every unbeliever that we know is heading for this sort of judgment. That's enough to want to pray for them and to beg God to soften their hearts and to reach in and give them a hunger and to use us, to use us, to speak the truth to them and to love them. Father, we thank you for your your graciousness to us. There are a lot of things that we would rather think about than judgment. 
We're taking Revelation in big chunks so that we don't despair, so that we don't lose hope. That that being said, we're going to come to a point where we see you wipe away every tear, where sin is gone, Satan is gone, death is gone, Hades is gone, pain is gone, sickness is gone, ignorance is gone, bias is gone, our emotional pain is gone, where there is no confusion, there's light, there is you, and there's one another. We will love one another as we can't love anybody today. We will forgive people we could not forgive today. We will embrace people that we could not embrace today and people who could not forgive us or embrace us will forgive and embrace and love us as well. It's a terrible time that's coming. We trust you. We believe in your righteousness. We believe in your glory. We believe in your love and in your mercy. There are people that are on our hearts right now who don't know you. And all of these judgments are going to fall on them apart from your mercy. And so we ask that you would be merciful. We ask that your grace would be poured out. We ask that you would grant them life and grant them faith and grant them repentance. Make them hungry. Use whatever circumstances are necessary to open a door. When those opportunities present themselves, give us the right words and give us the courage and help us be clear and concise. Help us to speak the truth, no more and no less. And Lord, do the miracle of saving. What an awesome thing it would be if if in the next year we were overrun with brand new Christians. Because you're reaching down into the mass of condemned humanity and calling sinners out of the world, choosing them out, and joining them to yourself and joining them to your body. Continue to lay those faces upon our minds and hearts. Remind us of them. Keep us in prayer for them. As the psalmist says, O Lord, save. O Lord, have mercy. And thank you for saving us. Thank you for having mercy on us. We give you thanks for this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.